As I was um, spending time with them, I'm often reminded as I am when I spend time with my grandkids that there will come a day when they're going to have to face the gospel in a, in a way that adults have to face the gospel. It's wonderful, those early sentiments of spirituality. I love that. I love to encourage that in young children. But this is why we tell parents, you need to teach them about the law of God and teach them to know their condition before God or they're, they're going to grow up with a wrong notion. If they grow up with a wrong notion about who they are, then, then they're going to, at some point, potentially take offense at Jesus. That's been the implication of this entire section of Luke's gospel that we've been looking at. They, they might, like so many then in that day, take offense at Christ. The early sentiments of spiritual interest are great to awaken, but they have to be informed because all of us are born with a nature that itself takes offense at Christ. We take offense at Christ. And Jesus had told even the disciples of John the Baptist to deliver the message back to him, chapter 7, verse 23, never take offense at Christ. Blessed is he who never takes offense at me, who doesn't stumble over me. That was the great implication. And you know, people were willing to say, okay, we've seen Jesus' miracles. He seems to have done some things amazing. He has had an interesting preaching ministry, and, and after all, he's kind of met some physical needs. I'm willing to concede that he's some sort of great a prophet, prophet who's arisen among us. I'm willing to give that much room. I heard him teach on moral conviction, the ethics of heaven. They heard him uh, teach on salvation. They heard him sort of confound the elite theologians of Jerusalem and and then they were eyewitnesses or even heard the eyewitness accounts of his power over demons, power over death, power over disease. They were even coming off of this experience of knowing that he raised this boy at a funeral from the dead, and they're willing to concede that if that's the case, then maybe, potentially, he might be some kind of great prophet potentially sent by God. So their feet are firmly planted in midair. Not really sure yet. Not really sure whether they can accept this Jesus. We already saw what, what's going on. Jesus implies that if you stumble over him or his claims or his teaching, it's because you're not willing to acknowledge that the only way to salvation is you're going to have to bypass you. You're going to have to get around what you would bring to God. And if Jesus can do all these things, and if he's a great prophet sent by God, and if he has revelation from God to his people, then why would anyone take offense at him? Yeah, it would be an attractive ministry. Not so. Because people are willing to embrace all kinds of God stuff, all kinds of religious God stuff. They're willing to do that. They're willing to even acknowledge that, okay, Jesus, the carpenter from Galilee, called a messenger from God. He's here to help the hurting but he is saying that I must put my faith in him and actually repent, as John Anderson said in the video, from my sin. I must render a guilty verdict over myself. I must enter a guilty plea. See, people aren't too annoyed if the idea is that there's a God out there somewhere and, and you know, um, 
he sent a message. I mean, they'll accept all kinds of books, right? The, the book of this religion, the book of that religion, the book of this speaker and that prophet. And the, they'll, they'll, they'll accept the idea that if there's a God out there, he might want to communicate and he might have sent a message through some book. And they're not even really too troubled by some prophet. Someone comes along and says, I have a revelation from God. They'll embrace all kinds of so-called prophets from God if God indeed does exist. And they are even willing to look at a list of do's and don'ts in religion and say, you know, that's not so bad because the more they can conform to a list of things to do and not to do, the better they feel about themselves as they approach the end of their life. But suddenly, when the message is exclusive, Jesus alone, when it's blunt, you must enter a guilty plea. You must put your faith in Christ alone. You must turn from your good deeds. And you must believe only in the perfect Lamb of God as a substitute for a judgment you would otherwise have to pay and you'll never be good enough to cover on your own. As soon as the message turns to that, then Jesus is offensive. I'd like to embrace God and religion, but I want my religion to affirm some of my decency. That's the idea. I'll admit I'm not perfect, but I should get some merit for the list of a few good things that I do. I mean, I should get some credit for that. Or, you know, there are so many people in the world far worse than I am. Surely that will help me in the end. Look for just a moment at Luke chapter 13 before we go back to Luke 7 and just let the text sort of unfold for us. Look at Luke 13 for a moment. This is a very interesting section where there was a group of people on a particular occasion and Jesus is there and some others come up in Luke 13 verse 1 and they tell Jesus about some Galileans that had been murdered or slaughtered and their blood was mingled with the sacrifices. So here you have this defiling act. You remember Pilate was regularly trying to provoke the Jewish people and so he'd take the religious sacrifices of the Jewish people and he would try to defile the temple and defile the holy places. And, and on this particular occasion, he got in serious trouble with Caesar for doing this, but there were some Galileans put to death, their blood was mingled with the sacrifices and notice what Jesus imagines that the people are believing about that experience. Verse 2. Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? In other words, are you sitting there thinking that these Galileans who had so much defilement happen, not only did they die, but they were defiled because their blood was mixed with these sacrifices and, and the whole thing was an attempt to defile the spiritual nature of it. Do you think because that happened to them, that they were worse people and you're better? Or, notice, he says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you're gonna likewise perish. Look, everybody's gonna die. It's just a matter of whether you're prepared to die or not. Notice, verse four, do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Oh, there was a natural disaster. The Tower of Siloam fell. It killed 18 people. Jesus says, you remember that? Do you know, do, do you suppose that those people had that happen to them because they were worse than all of you? I tell you, no. Verse five, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. That's why right there, 
why so many people take offense at the gospel of Jesus Christ. They suppose that God grades on a curve. He grades sin on a curve. And that if they're at least trying to be a decent person, if God does exist, then he owes them life and perhaps even a fairly decent life to match their fairly decent behavior. And if spending eternity means that I gotta face the fact that none of my decency amounts to anything before God and that before him I stand guilty in fullest measure no matter how faithful I may be at my religion, well then I find that highly offensive. That's what they say. Maybe the lyrics to Amazing Grace would sound like this. Amazing justice, cruel and sharp that wounds a saint like me. I am so good it makes no sense the tower fell on me. That's in their heart, see? That's why they're offended at Jesus because Jesus comes along and says, you're not better than anybody else. In fact, nothing you do will be good enough. Those who walk according to the flesh, verse five of Romans eight, set their minds on the things of the flesh because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God, doesn't even know, doesn't even have the ability to do so. So your reasoning as, a, as an unbeliever, apart from the grace of Christ, that means your mind, your motivations, your affections, your desires, it's all about self-preservation, it's all about self-justification, it's all about self-exaltation. You want to preserve yourself so you live for your pleasure, then you live with deceit and you hide your weaknesses and you blame shift. You want to exalt yourself so there's boasting and there's condescension and prejudice and hatred. We see that in the culture all the time. And you want to justify so you minimize your sin, you... You don't forgive others because you think you're better and then there's religious pretense, I'm somebody. Sinful fear, sinful anger, sinful despair, hopelessness. So God comes along with a plan of salvation and the the wisdom of this plan is so profound because God sends a savior that bypasses our human works. It's a salvation crafted in the genius of God that bypasses human works. I don't have to stand before God and bring a case. I don't have to. In the wisdom of God, he would bypass all the good works that men could offer. If anybody's gonna be saved, it would be a salvation based upon someone else's righteousness, not mine, not any human beings who live human being who lives on the face of the earth outside of Jesus, the God-man, the perfect man. None of you, not me, no one else on the earth who's ever lived could ever bring righteousness enough. So what did God do? Did he force you to go before the bar of divine justice with your own case? No, he just offers a righteousness that isn't yours, somebody else's righteousness, which is perfect. In the wisdom of God, salvation would come by faith, People say sometimes, it's that easy, really? Well, listen, salvation cost Jesus everything so that you could believe Christ and not have to bring your works before God. If you want to bring your works, you will be expected to bring them and they will be expected to be enough. And let me tell you, beloved, if you stand before God with just you, you will not be making a case verbally. John chapter five says that when you stand before the bar of justice and you're apart from Christ and you're not covered with his righteousness by faith alone, 
Then Moses and the Old Testament will come against you. The Father will come against you because he sent the Son. The Son's testimony will come against you. The Spirit's conviction will come against you. And the works of Jesus will come against you. You can read it all in John 5. There it is listed. That's the case against you. You won't be making a case. You'll say nothing. It's over. There's no case to be made. So in the genius of God, in the mercy of God, in the grace of God, in the wisdom of God, He said, salvation will be by faith, not by works. And it will be faith in someone who could be righteous enough, a second Adam, a perfect substitute. Unlike the first Adam who wasn't able, he wasn't willing, but the second Adam would be able and willing. Don't you love that? He's not only able, but he was willing to take every one of his thoughts and motives and deeds and his words and conform them to the will of his God, to the righteousness of God, conformed them obediently so that that righteousness could cover your guilt and my guilt. That's the wise plan of God. That's what this section in Luke 7 is about. Notice verse 35. Luke 7, 35, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. (laughs) That's very interesting. What an interesting statement. Let's just sort of look at this. We're going to look at 24 and following, but but the text will unfold very quickly. It's, It's a very simple narrative if we can get this in our minds right here. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. What does it mean to vindicate something? Well, to vindicate something is to to prove that it is true. Whatever it claimed, to prove that it's true is to vindicate that claim. So wisdom, if wisdom says this is the way of salvation, then there would have to be some way of exonerating that claim, some way of exalting and elevating the truth of that claim, proving the truth of that claim. Is God's plan of salvation wise Was it wise to send John the Baptist? Was it wise how things turned out with John the Baptist? Was it wise for Jesus to come the way he came? Was it wise to preach repentance and faith alone? Was it wise to leave human works off the table? Was it wise to call men and women to repent and to do it not by going into the heart of Jerusalem and saying, oh, let's join up with the Pharisees who already think they're holy and let's have people come to salvation through them. Was it wise to bypass them, go around them, and do it out in the wilderness? Was it wise, this way of salvation, a man coming as the God-man to actually be killed, to die for sinners? Was it wise? That's what the statement means. If all of that was supposed to be God's wise plan, then the fruit of it are the children of that wise plan. Not saved children, but just the deeds, the the fruit, the power of that wise plan will be that which proves it to be true, vindicates it. That's what is said here by the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the context, verse 29 This same root word to vindicate was used back in verse 29 when all the people and the tax gatherers heard. Heard what? They heard the statement about John and greatness in the kingdom. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they heard that and they justified God. There it is. They exonerated God. They said, yes, if that's true, that the gospel comes the way that it came, 
Through John the Baptist, preaching repentance, we went out and repented of our sin and we were actually forgiven. If that's true, then that is perfect wisdom that proves that God's plan was best. It's best because you know why? As a country dweller who just has a little village out in the countryside who would never imagine that spirituality could ever come to him, God sent the gospel even to that person. He didn't have to go through Jerusalem. He didn't have to go through his own works. He didn't have to become something on his own. We sometimes say it like this to somebody. Hey, if you want to come to Christ, you don't clean up your life to come to him, right? You can't clean up your life to come to him. You come to him by faith and turn from your sin and he begins the transforming process. He infuses you with his spirit's power to actually say yes to Christ and to holiness and to righteousness and no to sin. That's how we would say it. Well, there the people were. They were listening to to Jesus say these things about John and when they heard that the baptism of repentance in John's ministry was part of the wise plan of God, they exonerated God. They said, yes, that that is a wise plan because I couldn't get there any other way. What a wise plan for God to include me because I could come by faith and repentance and not have to be spiritual. But look at verse 30, how sad. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers, oh, there's the contrast. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized with the baptism of John. What does that mean? That means you have the exoneration of God's wisdom by those who reject it. You say, why? Why does that exonerate this wise plan? Because when God says you must turn from yourself and believe only in Jesus Christ, and someone says, no, I will not, do you know what they're saying? I believe my own Righteousness is enough. And when they say that, they expose the folly and the pride of themselves because what are they going to have in the end? Hopelessness, guilt, and judgment. Even hopelessness and guilt in this life. Religion, man-made religion, no power over sin, hopelessness, guilt, and the fruit of their life, the children of their particular human wisdom exonerates the wisdom of God in making salvation by faith in Christ alone. So when someone repents and believes in Christ, the wisdom of God's saving love and mercy is vindicated. It proves that it's the best plan because you go around their works because their works are nothing. But when someone rejects the gospel of Christ and excuses their sin, it exonerates the wisdom of God by proving his plan righteous and exposes them as proud Sometimes we say at GIBC, time and truth go together. Time and truth go hand in hand. What do we mean by that? We mean that if you give it enough time, the fruit of someone's own wisdom, someone's own plan for saving themselves will come out. So you you got one of two plans. You can choose the perfect wisdom of God in sending John, sending the message of repentance, sending Christ, sending a savior to cover you with his righteousness, or you can choose your own. Some repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some reject God's wise purposes and try to load their case with their own decency. So Paul will tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, in the wisdom of God, the world through its own wisdom didn't come to know God. That's how God planned it. The world through its own wisdom cannot come to know God. And that was part of God's wise plan. 
because God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. People, again, say all the time, it just seems so easy. You just preach the gospel of faith in Christ and someone can believe and have all their sins forgiven, past, present, future. Yes, if they're truly repentant and they believe in Christ, they can experience the lifting of guilt, the forgiveness of all their sins, the illumination of their mind by the Spirit of God to the truth, the empowerment of their life to live for Christ, and they will have hope for in, in eternity with Christ for glory. Yes, it costs Christ everything. But for you, you can be covered with righteousness. That's God's wise plan. But it's brought to you by faith. You choose your own plan, it's foolishness. Accomplishes nothing. And you have a whole bunch of religious people in this crowd who are rejecting Christ. And so the people on the hillside, just the average Joe, look at how they're described in verse 29, the people and the tax collectors. That's familiar terminology. Your average person that isn't religious and the outcasts of Israel, the people that even the religious elite said, you're nothing to us, you're traitors. So you got the everyday sinner who can never imagine that he could be forgiven. You know anybody like that? You ever had somebody say to you, I've sinned too much, I've gone too far, God could never reach me with mercy, that gospel sounds too easy, faith and repentance, come on, I've got to try to clean up my life to do something, I've sinned way too much for God to forgive me. You've heard that. Well, that's what these people were tempted to think. They've sinned way too much for God. And the tax collectors, I mean... Matthew was shocked when Jesus walked right up to him on the dock at the customs office and said, follow me. He was shocked. Wait a minute, you're a rabbi. What are you doing talking to me? Israel has rejected me because I'm a traitor to my own people. I could never be forgiven. You see, people will imagine that God cannot reach them with the long arm of his mercy but that doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. Paul even said that to the Romans. If some don't believe, well, their unbelief doesn't make the faithfulness of God worthless, will it? Romans 3, verse 3. It doesn't make the wisdom of God worthless just because people reject it. May it never be. Let God be found true and let every man be found a liar. Somebody accuses God of not being wise in his plan of salvation, they are on their own. They are liars, God's plan is the wisest plan of all. So now that you know the thrust of the text, just watch it just sort of fall open to us. Verse 24, when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Notice what he says. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury, they're found in royal palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. Stop right there. Notice how... Jesus says to the crowd, okay, he's just said to the disciples of John, go back and tell John I'm the Messiah and you've seen all these things and go back and tell him don't be offended at me. Don't be offended at my ministry. 
And so they go back to the east side of the Dead Sea, the prison of Machairus, and they give John that report. In the meantime, as they're leaving, Jesus starts talking to the crowd, and he says, now look, you've all come out to the wilderness to see John the Baptist, so I want to know what you went out there to see. Did you go out to see a man who didn't have conviction? A reed shaken by the wind? Someone who blows with the wind like a reed in the waters on the edge of the Sea of Galilee? Someone who goes back and forth with his conviction? No, you didn't go out there to see a man like that. This is a guy who had conviction. And if it cost you to go out and see him, then certainly you must have thought more about the wisdom of God in this plan than just your casual, hey, I want to go out and just check this guy out. No, you must have come out there to see a man of conviction. You must have wanted to hear the message. You must have wanted to see something. This guy isn't going back and forth. He's got convictions. Did you come all the way out here to the desert to see and hear a preacher whose message would waver depending on the way the spiritual wind was blowing in Jerusalem? No, the perfect wisdom of God is vindicated by sending a messenger who didn't waver even when the leaders of Israel rejected him. That's wisdom. He's out there in the desert. He's not going through Israel. They rejected him and he still preached that message of repentance. That's the the unfolding wisdom of God. How rich to give you a messenger to prepare your heart for the Messiah. And he was out in the desert. You had to go out there to see him. You didn't go out there on a casual picnic. You went out all the way in the desert of Judea to see a man who preached repentance. You came out there and were baptized because that was the plan of God. It was the wisest plan of all. That's why you came. How much conviction did John have? Where is John? He's in prison. Why is he in prison? He told Herod in public, you're committing adultery and you need to repent of that. (laughs) He got thrown in prison. How much conviction does this guy have? What did you think you were going to go out and see? This is the wisdom of God to prepare the way for the Lord by a messenger, a prophet that is willing to say the hard things even though it's going to cost him. That's what you came out here to see. Guy's on death row. You see any of the Jewish leaders doing that? You see any of the leaders of Israel telling Herod, hey, you're committing adultery and you need to repent of it? Oh, no. They knew he was committing adultery, but they didn't want to say anything. They're in the back room making deals with the king. They're all about self-righteousness and earning their way to heaven and building a kingdom and an empire. John the Baptist, that's God's messenger, not these guys in Jerusalem who won't say a word to Herod. But this, this weird guy out in the desert says to you, You need to repent. I'm telling you, the Messiah is coming and you need to soften your heart and admit your sin because he's coming. And oh, by the way, Herod's committing adultery and I'm going to tell him about it. I got John put in prison. That's what you came out to see. And he, he was disentangled. Notice, what did you come out to see? Someone dressed in soft clothing? Hey, people who have splendid clothing, they live in luxury. They're, they're in royal palaces. Tell me, did you come out all the way out here looking for someone living in the lap of luxury? No, because the perfect wisdom of God is vindicated by the fact that this messenger didn't couch the message of repentance in a self-indulgent lifestyle. He didn't do that. The Pharisees were self-indulgent. That's not God's way. God's way is not sending a messenger that's self-indulgent. He sends humble messengers. Messengers that don't live a self-indulgent lifestyle. Messengers who live whatever God's called them to do. They sacrifice those things. That's God's wise plan. 
It's simply genius for God to send a prophet whom the people couldn't attach themselves to because if you attached yourself to him rather than just his message, then he becomes a source of self-righteousness. You couldn't attach yourself to John. Would you have followed John all the way to prison? Notice none of the disciples of John are in prison with him. You ever wonder about that? Why are they not in prison with him? Because when he said, Herod, you're committing adultery, and he got sent to prison, his disciples went, ooh, uh, don't say anything. They're over in the villages listening to the teaching of Jesus, going by their house and getting a home-cooked meal from mom, staying in a little hostel and getting a little, little rest and relaxation and then going over to the prison to visit John. They're not in prison. You couldn't attach yourself to John because he wouldn't let you. It wasn't about John. It was the genius of God to send John the Baptist because John the Baptist lived the kind of life no one would want to attach to so that he could say, you follow Jesus, not me. Man of great conviction. That's why he gets the highest tribute. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, one who's more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. And he's quoting Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Why is John more than a prophet? Because he was predicted. Prophets weren't, weren't necessarily predicted. John the Baptist was predicted. He was, according to Jesus, the Elijah who was to come. And he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, Luke 1, 17. Jesus is here vindicating the genius of God for sending the greatest prophet ever born to deliver God's message. Why? Because God didn't do it through the religious establishment. He didn't do it through the self-righteous religious pretense of Israel. He sent a guy who would come out in the wilderness, live a, con- uh, a totally disentangled life, bizarre convictions, and you couldn't attach yourself to his lifestyle. So he could say, repent. And then when you get baptized by John, he sends you to Jesus, the Savior, because you were repentant. What a vindication of the wise plan of God. And then he make, Jesus makes this statement at the end of that verse. Notice. And yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You know, you read that and you think, why, why are you saying that, Jesus? Why are you saying that? Commentators go all over the place on this statement, but the meaning isn't that hard to unlock. First of all, look at, look at verse 29, when the people and the tax collectors heard this. So we're, we have a contrast being set up between people and tax collectors. I said to you, that's the rank and file sinner in all the villages and the hillsides and the outcasts of Israel. And then look at verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers. So it seems clear in verse 28 that Jesus first vindicates John the Baptist as the greatest prophet ever born so that no one would doubt the fact that that was genius on God's part. But then he includes that the everyday sinner and the outcast who heard John preach and then repented of their sins, they are the greatest in the kingdom. You know what that would have done to the crowds? Wow, the wisdom of God to bypass my works Offer me a savior whose righteousness covers me and it reaches all the way to someone like me. In the perfect wisdom of God, the gospel of repentance from self-glory and faith in Jesus as Lord doesn't come to the spiritually proud. It comes to the spiritually humble anywhere. No matter what your sinful past is. 
God's wisdom is vindicated in a great prophet, but it's also vindicated in a message that reaches anyone. The average sinner, the impoverished countryside sinner who never thought the gospel could come to them. And this is how you would have thought, perhaps, and it's also how people think sometimes today. Well, if the spiritually elite of Israel are rejecting the truth and they're going to be judged, and then God's greatest prophet, who does this great thing for God, he ends up on death row. Man, if I don't have his conviction and I don't have their spirituality, there it is right there. I can't get to the gospel or to heaven or a Messiah because I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not, I, I can't be as holy as them and I certainly don't have the conviction of John the Baptist who told me that message in the first place. And Jesus says, yeah, but you came out with a heart of humility and were baptized by John's baptism because you wanted to repent and in that sense then you are at the zenith of kingdom life. You are at the top of the food chain so far as salvation is concerned. The genius plan of God is to save anyone. doesn't matter how much you've sinned. Forgiveness can reach anyone who is humble and admits that they bring nothing. What a wonderful, wise plan. And that's what he says. Verse 29, when the people and the tax collectors heard that, they acknowledged God's justice because they were baptized with the baptism of John. They repented. Verse 30, the Pharisees and lawyers, they rejected God's purpose for themselves. They weren't baptized by John. That means they didn't repent. So you have the vindication of John in his call to repentance. You have the vindication of mercy for the humble. And you have the vindication of judgment against the proud. All of this just speaks of the wisdom of God over and over again. And what does he say about the proud? Well, it's just hilarious. Verse 31, well, what am I going to compare the men of this generation? What are they like? These people that reject, I mean, look at this. Oh, they're like children. Verse 32, they, they sit in the marketplace, they call to one another, and they say, hey, we played the flute. We, we had a wedding and celebrated and played the flute, and you didn't dance. And then they say to the same person, you know, we... We were at a funeral, we played this sad song and you didn't mourn and weep. You say, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about John the Baptist and Jesus by comparison, verse 33. John the Baptist came eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he's got a demon. Man, this guy won't celebrate with the people. He won't be involved in the regular ebb and flow of social life. He's out there in the desert and he's bringing a message of repentance and you say he is full of Satan. And then Jesus comes, and he's not out in the desert. He's not bizarre. He's not living a lifestyle of some, some strange guy. Clearly, he can't have a demon then. If you say John the Baptist was weird and had a demon, he's insane. Jesus comes the very opposite. He's sitting with people. He's dining with people. He's enjoying social life. And you say, yeah, well, he's doing that because he's worldly. He's corrupt. What, which is it, people? You see... That even, that even vindicates and exonerates the wisdom of God. When someone is petty, they're annoyed that neither John nor Jesus would tweak their message or to accommodate them. You know, they came out in the desert and said, so what's your message? And John said, oh, who warned you guys to flee the judgment to come? You Pharisees, who warned you, you bunch of snakes? That's what he said to them. Who warned you guys to slither away from judgment? 
then bring forth fruit of repentance. Repent, turn from all your pretense and your self-righteousness and then you might be able to, to see the softness toward the gospel. They were petty. They're like, no. John comes, he says, repent, but we just use his desert dwelling as an excuse to say he's insane. Jesus comes, he's not in the desert, he's with us in the social, socializing context and we say he's worldly. They're petty. They're fickle. Did you know that next week in the next section when Jesus goes to eat dinner with Simon the Pharisee, that's precisely what is happening? It's to show that here you have a Pharisee dining with Jesus and a prostitute walks in. She's weeping on his feet and Simon's thinking in his heart, you know, if this guy were a rabbi or a prophet, he would know this, this woman's a sinner. He wouldn't be letting her touch him like that. And yet she comes in by contrast, totally broken, totally shattered, totally humble, totally forgiven and worshiping. Again, the fruit vindicates the wisdom of God. Jesus reaches out to a prostitute whose life is destitute and humbled. He does not reach out in forgiveness to the Pharisee who's already righteous on the outside. He doesn't. Because the plan of salvation comes to someone who knows they have nothing. They bring nothing. They are nothing. And here the self-righteous people were slandering John. You're insane. They're slandering Jesus. You're worldly. Well, how do you want us to come? We come with a message of repentance in the desert. You say we're insane. We come with a message of a savior in the city, in the, in the social context, and you say we're worldly. Which is it? No, we're not gonna tweak the message for you because you're twisted and proud The Apostle Paul is going to close this sermon right here. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 1. Just listen to it, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following. You can jot that down as a reference. Here it is. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Oh, somebody says the gospel's foolish. Oh, Jesus is foolish. Faith in Christ alone is foolish. The idea that you could be forgiven of all your sins by just putting your faith in him, that's foolish. They're perishing. They're perishing. But to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. For it is written, this is from Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I'll set aside. You think you're spiritually clever? You think you're intelligent? God will set it aside and prove and vindicate that his plan was the most righteous plan. He was trying to bypass human works so that you wouldn't have to bring a case for yourself. You could bring Jesus Christ's covering righteousness on your behalf and be saved. So where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? You think you're intelligent? You think you have a gospel? You think you have good works? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? There it is. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through his, its wisdom didn't come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. People always say, you just preach a simple message. It's just, I have to bring something. I have to be good enough for, I have to clean my life up somehow. I can't just believe in Jesus. I have to get religious. I gotta clean this thing up. I've gotta atone for my past sins. Well, the scriptures say that you can't come to know God that way. And in the wise plan of God, you call the message foolish, it's through that foolish message that salvation truly comes. 
Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Gentiles, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then listen to this. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Does God have foolishness? No. Does he have weakness? No. But what he's saying is what people call foolish and weak It's the wisest and strongest, most powerful message there is because it bypasses the need for your human works at the judgment. Ah, Consider your calling, brethren. He's talking to the Corinthians. There were not many wise. In other words, some of you are stupid. Can't figure this out. And not many mighty. Some of you are just really weak. You can do nothing, make nothing of your life. And not many noble, you don't have royal blood flowing through your veins, you're not going to make it that way. So here in Corinth, here's the misfit church, kind of like GIBC, where not many mighty, not many noble, not many intelligent. We got some smart people here, but you didn't get to Christ by your intelligence. We got some really strong people here, but your muscles didn't make you saved. We got some royal blood people here, so what? We got people who saved grandparents, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children who believe in him. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things, the low-level things of the world, and the despised things, God has chosen those because everyone calls those nothing, but he chose those things so that it renders everyone else's wisdom nothing. Why? so that no man, no flesh may boast before God. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. There it is, beloved. This is the wisest plan. It's so freeing. One day, I I saw the hypocrisy and sin of my life as I should have seen it. Prior to the time I came to Christ, this would be true of everyone here who is in Christ, I didn't see it. I, I certainly had no power over sin, but I had some decent areas of my life. And man, I could go to church with my parents and dress up and I could pretend with the best of them. I knew all the answers. Even as an unbeliever at 16 years old, I led some people to the Lord. Can you believe that? I was not living for Christ, didn't really care about Christ, but I went through the motions and led some people to the Lord. How awkward. (laughs) How awkward to find out later that all those little religious things do nothing. And God, in his wisdom, just showed me the hypocrisy. In a burst of supernatural clarity, I saw that at the bar of justice, that stuff is going nowhere. And it all became, like the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, trash but it was so freeing to say, oh, there's, there's a prophet who spoke of a Messiah, a Savior, and a Savior who came, and he lived a righteous life that I couldn't live, and he died a perfect death that I could never die and pay for my sin, and he satisfied God's wrath, and I put my faith and trust in him, and his righteousness covers me, and all my sins are forgiven. I'll take it. That is the wisest, most genius plan there ever could be. And when someone accepts it, it 
it vindicates the wisdom of God. And when someone rejects it and they, they live in religious pretense and hopelessness, it vindicates the wisdom of God because wisdom is vindicated by all the fruits, all the children that grow out of it. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you're vindicating God either way in your hopelessness and guilt and religious pretense for even being here. Or maybe you'll vindicate the righteousness of God by coming to the simple message of the gospel and just saying, okay, I bring nothing, I am nothing. I'm worthy of judgment. I enter a guilty plea. Lord, please forgive me and cover me with your righteousness. Is that not a wise plan? Foolishness to the world. Absolute genius on God's part. So gracious. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for... The wisdom of your plan, it's just so amazing to us. And prior to Christ, we were as fickle as the Pharisees. Oh, it doesn't really matter who brings the message. We just, you either tweak it to include our righteousness or we're not coming. And then one day, you shattered our pride. And we saw Jesus Christ as we ought to see him, pure and righteous and sacrificial and loving humble we saw our pride in thinking that our works would be enough we saw our pride in thinking that your holiness was not what it really is and you drew us to yourself and so Lord in your mercy vindicate your righteous plan your wise plan by saving sinners even in this room today that would be our joy see people come to Christ And stop this nonsense. May you open their eyes. And for those who know and love you, grow us in these things. Help us be bold. Tell the truth. Speak the truth about holiness and judgment to come and the need for repentance and faith and to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And Lord, even get yourself glory and vindicate your wise and holy plan even in those who harden against it. Tragic when we see that. But you're even vindicating your wise plan in that. So we pray for them that you'd be merciful. We pray mostly that you'd be honored and vindicated by all the deeds of men. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.